oh, this isn't a me problem. This is a system problem. What are we doing? What do you want your relationship with medicine to be? There is no right answer there. It's okay to ask the hard questions. That is the voice of today's guest, Dr. Trisha James. And you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Yeah, baby, funkin' it up. Man, do I love that funk. How you doing? Rob Orman here, physician, coach, and your podcast host on the show that breaks down ideas, strategies, habits, tactics, mindsets, and who knows what else to help you elevate in your career and just kick ass. To wit, if you are at work, your doctory type work, I'm not talking about a second job as a, like a wedding photographer or a parasnorkeling instructor. You're at work, seeing patients, doing the job, and you look around and you see that your colleagues are a bit on the crispy side, a little, little burnt, you know, getting a little, little burnt in the oven there. And you think, I don't want to get there myself. Or on the contrary, you see yourself as a little bit overdone. You don't want to get more baked. Maybe too much cooking metaphor here. But either way, you're, not, you're just not sure how to go about it. I don't want to either feel this way or why not that way. But what do I do? The Flame Proof Course was made specifically for you. This is a six-month bi-weekly intensive to help you get your career back on track, to put it on track, or, or really just set you up for success. Our Flame Proofers run the gamut from right out of training to seasoned veterans, but they all share a desire to thrive in their careers and make them last. The Flame Proof course will make you so burnout resistant that, you know, they can tell you, you got to see five patients an hour with only a rusty spoon in your hand and a eunuch clerk at your side, and you will just smile. Results not guaranteed. Our next cohort begins February 1st, 2024. Registration is now open. This will fill. Link in the show notes. Where else would they be? And oh yeah, probably sometime the next week or two, we are going to drop the announcement for our live event happening spring 2024. Enough said on that. All right, I'm going to tell you, I love every show put out on stimulus. If I didn't, I wouldn't publish it. But this one in particular holds such a special place in my heart. I think it is one of the most important pods we have ever put out. Why is that? A lot of what is discussed on stimulus are strategies that focus on the personal domain, on you as an individual, what you do in your life with your relationships, or in your individual professional domain. What can I do within my sphere of influence to make a difference in my experience and those around me. We do touch on systems issues. Sometimes we get deep on them, but you know, at times those systems challenges can feel like insurmountable mountains to climb. Why I love this episode so much is because it provides not only a framework, but an evidence-based method on how to build an incredibly effective, relatively inexpensive, and fundamentally doable, whatever you want to call it, wellness, anti-burnout, work satisfaction, clinician retention project. This is not about a pizza party. This is not, go take a yoga class and you'll be fine. Stop bothering me. This is the real deal. And it's going to partly focus on the HOSP CPR study, 
which if you want to know the full name of it, Creating a Comprehensive Pandemic Response to Decrease Hospitalist Burnout During COVID-19, Intervention Versus Control Results in Two Comparable Hospitals, HOSP-CPR. Now, now you know why they shorten these things. And I think that this study is one of the most important to come out in the field of wellness and anti-burnout in the past several years. We are going to get very specific with our guest today, Dr. Tricia James. Dr. James is an internist and the medical director of wellness at Providence Portland Medical Center. She is a champion of local and regional clinician wellness and first author of the aforementioned groundbreaking HOSP CPR study. So we're going to talk about how that study played out, the specific intervention that they used, what happened, how you can start your own program. That's in the first half. In the second half of the pod, things are going to shift and we're going to talk about how you can recognize when your colleague might be in distress, what to do about it, what to say, what not to say. There is so much in here and the whole thing in less than an hour. So let's get to it. Starting off big picture. During peak COVID, one of the peak COVIDs, the big peak, the sustained peak, let's call it that. And I will say it is the peak that happened after cities were no longer applauding in unison. And then it was just intensity dialed up. And clinicians were really feeling the strain on so many levels. And you and a group of docs ran a study a real-world study to see if you could reduce burnout while it was a full conflagration. And this was two hospitalist groups. And in one hospital, you said, hey, go about your business as usual. In the other, you said, let's do this intervention. Now, before the intervention, there were no site differences in burnout, job satisfaction, so pre-intervention, everybody's starting the same. Good. Just how you want a study to begin. After the intervention, burnout levels were almost twice as high in the control group. Wow. The numbers, when I read the study, the numbers are shocking. And then there were all sorts of other markers that the intervention group felt supported while the control group didn't. It's amazing. What was this intervention? Yeah, there were a lot of different parts to the intervention, but the biggest piece of it was having three hospitalist partners and myself that brought intentionality to the well-being of the group. And we did that by meeting every week initially and putting our heads together and saying, what is going on with the group? What are the major stressors this week, last week? And what can we do about it? And during that time, there were major variables that were out of our control. But one of the things that we got really good at was seemingly big, at, like the biggest variables that seemed out of reach even being able to look at them and saying, what is in our control? And that could be, I can't have any control over how many COVID patients are in the hospital. But I can pull together people on the COVID service 
and learn from them. What are the workflows that are working well? How are you accessing interpreters when you're in PPE? Who are logistically running your day? And what are the things that you need from the hospital that you're not getting? And so by that way, it was, all right, there's things I can do to navigate my day better. And I can communicate what I need directly to our medical directors that could escalate that to hospital leadership. Let me just untangle it in my mind here. So you've got the champion saying, what do we need? Where are the pain points? What is within our sphere of control here? Where do we have agency? How were the other hospitalists involved in this? Because it it sounds like having people get a sense of agency during this time they feel they're not was some of the real horsepower of this. Yes. Yeah, the way that we did that initially was we actually created what we called COVID groups, which happened every week when we started, that were over lunch on Teams, because this was peak pandemic times. We were not in the same room. And we recognized at that time a huge stressor for people was even just keeping up with information. And treatments were evolving so rapidly and workflows were evolving so rapidly. And so we had the infectious disease doctor come for the first 15, 20 minutes of those meetings and just answer questions and give updates. And so we knew that alone was going to help alleviate some of the stress and it got people there. And then once we had people there, we had a platform for sometimes it was just debriefing and sharing. And sometimes it was specific topics that we felt like the group would really benefit from. And our engagement with those COVID groups was exceptionally high. So we asked actually that the intervention group and over 90% had attended a COVID group and over 75% of the group had actually attended over 50%. So the number of people coming and even watching recordings, if we recorded them or we would send out meeting minutes of, hey, here are the highlights, here's what we learned to the group every time as well. And that's the platform for how we engaged the larger group. I want to go in a time machine and take that now to the present day because mm-hmm. that peak COVID time now is many years ago. Now mm-hmm. the workflows are known. Now there are vaccines. Now it's just, it's something else in the background, like everything else. What has happened to those groups since then? They have continued actually for over three years now. The frequency of them has decreased. So now it's more like every two weeks to every month. The topics have changed. So for example, there was a session on taking care of your aging parents or having our addiction medicine team come and talk about how do we take care of these polysubstance use patients better. They're a big stressor for us. I could probably list 10 different topics, but it's again that active reflective process of what's impacting the group right now. What do people need? How do we provide a venue for that? Since COVID has decreased overall, or at least the acute stress of COVID has decreased, they have shifted more towards in-person lunches in the courtyard some happy hour events, dog park park meetups, some other things. 
And we've still found that there's a role for some groups sometimes of bringing people together around shared stressors. I, I'm getting a sense of esprit de corps as, mm -hmm. yeah, we are a cohesive unit and we are supported and we support each other. Yes. So you have this intervention and then you see this pretty significant dichotomy after the intervention that one group's, wow, job satisfaction, less burnout. Since the end of this, now we're several years later, what has happened with the non-intervention group? Yeah, so the non-intervention group has struggled. And I would say that they are not alone. And if I rewind time a little bit back to when we started the study, I had no idea what exactly what we would do or if it would be effective. And so getting the non-intervention group to participate was very much a scientific question of can we actually have an impact or not? And what can we learn from this? And it was nice that they were in the same system because the system was rolling out their own well-being efforts around setting up behavioral health appointments, and they had their own things they were trying to do. So I was shocked by the degree of difference at a year. And after that, the national data came out that our non-intervention group mirrored what happened nationally. The rates of burnout just skyrocketed. And once you're behind the eight ball, like once you've lost that esprit de corps, once it's not that unified, trusting relationship anymore, it's really hard to recover from that. And I think that's what we're seeing live out. I see it living out across the country, really. Okay. We've made the case for a, a relatively low lift intervention. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're buying some kind of endovascular clot retrieval device that costs $15 million. <laughs> this is, let's just meet and figure out what our pain points are and where do we have agency. Was there a cost to this? Was there a financial investment to get this started? Yes, there was. The initial grant funded eight hours of my time as the primary study operator. And I will say a big chunk of that was actually I offered our intervention group one-on-one -on -one coaching, anybody that wanted it. So that was a big chunk of my time. And then it paid for these three hospitalists time for two hours a week. So not a ton, but it was some acknowledgement that this was a time commitment. And honestly, they worked more than that probably, but they felt okay about that because there was that acknowledgement from the system for their effort and a little bit of money for data analysis and a little bit of money for interventions for things like dinners or acknowledgements. So this is where when the docs get bought pizza, it really pays off. It's not just, hey, I know you had a bad shift. Here's your pizza. Yeah. Okay. And I, I, think, I think that's part of that, though, it would say is because it was real-time reflection, what's going on, what does the group mm -hmm. need, and that acknowledgement of it's a big surge right now, we're super understaffed, there's not a lot in our control right now, but we can acknowledge people's hard work. And so we timed our, we didn't ever do pizza, but, but we timed our goodie bags 
to line up with those periods just to acknowledge and help people feel seen. We know this is hard. So you're the champion amongst champions. You're the team leader. And you get this group together who's suffering. It's not that all of your suffering shall disappear. It's, we're going to work on this. But one of the pitfalls I see with this is it could turn into a bitch sesh and then you get co-rumination. And so it's like a, a Facebook group where, oh, here's my problem. Oh, can you believe this? Yes, yes, yes. And then the co-rumination just makes things worse. It's great to get things out there. And there's this inflection point where you can be productive or you can just continue to complain. It actually makes things worse. Mm-hmm. How yep. did you navigate that? Yeah, this is a lot of learning and acknowledgement and reflection on our part of for ourselves. What are the meetings that have been helpful? When has it turned into making us feel worse? And this is where I love the yes and communication, the acknowledgement of yes. I can totally appreciate that that's your reality. That makes 100% sense. And now what? So it's just creating this shared acknowledgement, normalization of people's experience, but not stopping there. And that and now what is where the sense of agency and empowerment can come in. Let's scale this. You're talking about the national trends and they're not beautiful to say the least. And someone is listening to this right now saying, yeah, I would like to do this in my own hospital. What are the minimum elements to get something like this running? That depends a little bit on a person's own bandwidth and boundaries. And I will say that because historically, wellness work has been volunteer work. We have not seen a lot of institutional investment in people's time and energy to do this work. For myself, for a long time, I did a lot of volunteer work, and that felt okay to me for a while within kind of my own boundaries. And eventually that got to a place where that didn't, it wasn't okay with me anymore. And that was around the advocacy of my time. And so really, the first question is for yourself, is this work that you want to do? What are you willing to do? How much time? And what sort of compensation, which could be monetary or non-monetary, do you need to do it? All right. I want to get into the structure of these groups in a moment, but I know you do a lot of programs and Mm -hmm. you seek grant money because this is something that is worthy of compensation. And also the other aspect of that, not that this is worthy, but your time is worth being compensated. And Yes. Just, yeah. Do this out of the goodness of your heart. And every wellness champion I've ever met who stops doing it, almost to a person does it because it's not supported. And it's just, okay, I volunteered and now I'm not volunteering. And then the whole thing just died. No, you seek grant money, still continually seek grant money. And even you get a lot of no's. Mm-hmm. What does it take? What is the approach to get to yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say the number one thing that keeps me going is my own coaching and reflection on my mindset and allowing myself to feel disappointed for a little while 
And then the invitation to back to the, why do I care? Why am I doing this? Do I want to keep going? And from that space, I can access creativity and think outside of the box in different ways than I could otherwise. And so just to get really concrete about that, for this new program that I'm running now, I knew that I needed some funding to get it off the ground and had submitted multiple grant applications that I didn't get. This can't be impossible. There have to be other venues. And started meeting with leadership from the insurance plan to see if there were any opportunities there. I started looking at more national grant opportunities. I actually met with the leader of our risk department to say, we know that unwell physicians have higher risk of malpractice claims and litigation. I met with our advocacy team to say, is there anything we can do at the legislative le- legislator level to try and get funding? And just continue to put my head down, meet with anybody who is willing to listen, make the case for why this work is so important, both from a data standpoint and from a story standpoint. And eventually, it took about nine months of diligence before I finally got a yes to get my latest program off the ground. When you're looking for a grant, so you go to admin. I think that's where most people are going to go at first. Mm -hmm. And where you're going to get your quickest nose. Sometimes you get a yes. Sometimes you have a real servant leader who says, oh yeah, this is important. But it's hard to persuade them because this is not immediate money back. It says, hey, let's open, a, let's build a new OR for $6 million and we are going to do surgeries and you're not going to believe it. You're going to have, you're going to be able to fuel your Cadillac with dollar bills. Oh, I shouldn't <laughs> say things like that. It's money. It's metrics, it's CMS, it's people do things. People are persuaded to do things, not because of your reasons. It's because of their reasons, what is in their interest. And I wish it wasn't that way, but it is that way. So you just take that when you're going into a negotiation or a persuasion. And thinking, as you're saying that, thinking about when you talk to an an admin, it's, all right, what's the issue here? It is expensive when you lose a doc. It is even more expensive to replace a doc when we have fewer docs working, our efficiency is less. And so it is really, what is in your interest here? Rather than, as opposed to, hey, we are suffering and we would like to suffer less, buck up buttercup and show more resilience, which I, I, we see that all the time from the C-suite, especially non-clinician, the C-suite said, so, yeah, so I guess the, the thing is, is you just need to suck it up harder and do your job and don't come to me complaining. You're paid so well. What's your problem? I know that there's a real question in there, but just, I love, and you're talking this, what, how do you do it? What's in their interest? What's the end of the story? You present a story, present a story that will resonate with them. The days when a doctor can go into an administrator's office and slam their hand down on the desk and say, this is how it has to be. Those days are gone. It's yep. not happening anymore. Yeah, I think that's so true. And the other thing that comes up for me is that I've learned is to set aside my preconceived notions of what they care about. 
Mm. I know that they do care about money too, but when I can set aside my own judgments and my own shoulds of what how I think they should act, or for me, you should, of course, you should fund this work, right? But I know when I can set aside that energy and just get curious about what is their world like? How could I influence their world? And for some of our executives, I've learned how awful it feels to them to have docs complaining all the time about things that they don't even have control over. And there isn't a sense of agency or empowerment anywhere. It's just a whole lot of complaining and helplessness that feels terrible to the to our executive leaders, too, who are trying to help and trying to make things better. I had dinner with a hospital attorney who was mm-hmm. the, the attorney for the hospital that I w- worked with for many years. And I would hear about the decisions that he made. And I remember thinking, this guy has got to be the biggest horse's ass ever. I can't believe that he is making these decisions that impact us. And then we hung out. And first, it's like, this is the greatest guy. He's so cool and thoughtful. And then we talked about these decisions and just getting into his mindset and how can I help the docs in the hospital? And these are the constraints. And I wish it wasn't this way, but it is this way. And I, this is the, really the only path we can take and just how it tore his heart to make this, wow, I guess we are on the same team. All right. Let's say you get funding. <laughs> You've told your story. You've negotiated in the proper way. You were persuaded. Yep. Here I have it. I, here's a lot of uh, emergency clinicians listening to this. So here we go. You've got your emergency group. And I want to start a program like this. Mm-hmm. I have a funding for a part of an FTE to do this. What's my first step? I think your first step is finding your allies in the group. And depending on the size of the group, that could be one person. It could be a lot more. But who are the people in my group that I know I can turn to get different perspectives, to be teammates, to invest in this work with me, and talking to group leadership, right? Because I really think you have to have a supportive group leadership that it they don't have to totally buy in, but they have to be willing to support the efforts that you want to try and make. Going to break in for a moment to let you know about some of our free resources at roborman.com. These were created to address very specific stress points in medical practice. Scripting your least favorite conversations. You know, why reinvent the wheel every time you have one of your least favorite conversations? Have a framework that works and doesn't deplete you. For charting, there are my favorite documentation templates and the classic in its fourth edition, the quick and dirty guide to calling consults. I know many of you have already availed yourself to one or all of these. And if you have yet to, you can click on the freebies link on the website menu and you will be rocking. Or if not rocking, you will at least be on the page where you can get the goods, which is, that's kind of rocking. Back to the show. I want to loop back for a moment to talk about the two groups that you studied. The intervention group, thriving, and really 
so satisfied, as we talked about before, satisfied with their situation. It's not that it's easy. The non-intervention group recently unionized. How has that played out? Yeah, it's a super interesting time to be in medicine. I was reading an article yesterday about the largest physician group that just unionized in the Midwest. But I think that there is so much anger at larger systems. And I just want to reinforce that both groups are incredible and both group leaders are incredible. And as this has played out, I felt bad. I didn't know what was going to happen on the other end, but felt bad that this one group got something that the other didn't. And the anger, I think, of saying, we want to do this work and we don't feel supported in it is huge. It's palpable. And what I worry a little bit about is the lack of specificity. And what I mean by that is I totally understand having anger at big systems, but that's where we don't have any control and we don't have a lot of influence versus I am really passionate about this grassroots energy and effort rather than waiting for kind of top-down system fixes. Yeah, the agency you have in your personal relationships and your immediate group is so much greater than the system. You also can affect the system. It just takes a lot more effort. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that in hospitalist groups and everywhere in medicine that this is happening, one thing that is almost universal as a trend, as a contributor to stress and dissatisfaction currently is staffing. There is not mm -hmm. enough staffing to do this job. Mm -hmm. And you think, you know what? I can only do so much. We can only do so much. This feels like it's beyond my control. And mm -hmm. we're talking about you have agency versus helplessness, hopelessness. When agency fades, hopelessness gets stronger. What do you think is a skillful way to navigate this particular stressor? Say mm -hmm. that this was brought to the group. Yep. Yes, and yep. how's it play out? Yeah, there's so much goodness in what you just said. And I think it's so important to acknowledge the yes and here, where there's, of course, a role for our own agency, our own mindset, and how we approach problems. and. We do have an opportunity to exercise our influence in our system, in our practice, in our group, on the national scene. And so when I think about staffing, it's a really good example for asking the question, what do I have control over? I have control over how I treat my colleagues. I have control over how I treat my team. Am I doing everything I can every day to keep the people we have so that this is a, and influence the workplace? Mm. So this is a place people want to come. I can also, though, if I feel really passionate about that issue, say, but I want to have a bigger influence here. So as doctors, we have so much more power than we realize in saying, here's a problem. There's limited resources. 
let's look at that problem and can we be creative about what we do about it? And we are natural problem solvers, resilient, amazing people. So I have no doubt that we can be a part of that agency in creating something different. But it requires us to have acceptance of what is first. And that's where I see so many of us getting stuck. It shouldn't be like this. I'm angry. I'm in denial. I'm sad. And without tending to, yeah, of course you're those things. And it is what it is. Now what? When we were preparing for this pod, you said something that has stuck with me. It's echoed in my mind. It is that we need to recognize in medicine that we are collectively grieving. What do you mean by that? Ever since I saw this, it has dramatically influenced me too. It stuck with me because I personally can see how I'm grieving what I thought my career would be, what I thought being a doctor would be. And it's really painful. And I go through all the emotions of grief. Sometimes I feel really sad. Sometimes I'm really angry. Sometimes I am in denial. It can't be this bad, can it? Now that I have that model, it helps me a lot understand what's happening in myself, bring more compassion for me, but also to bring that compassion to our community who, whether they know it or not, is collectively grieving. And what I worry about is I see groups becoming more and more fractured and more and more individualistic and less cohesive. And I think a lot of it is that we all have these really big feelings that we're not naming or tending to. We don't spend any space or time saying, I'm really pissed about what's happening right now. Or I'm really sad that this event just happened. It's all logistics. The meetings are X, Y, and Z. This has to happen. And I, un- I understand it. There's Our system's rapidly changing and evolving. But for us to get to some semblance of acceptance, of, yeah, this is what it is. Now, how do we want to step into medicine? It's going to take some processing to get there. And it's not like it's a one and done. I think the reality of healthcare right now is that there's some latest announcement that brings on a whole new wave of grief. Yeah, every workforce newsletter or news story, it's rarely, hey, amazing changes in healthcare. Can you believe how great it's gotten? Exactly. We said a a couple of things in there that uh, really struck me is feeling, is you feel, is this what I signed up for? This is not what I signed up for. It shouldn't be this way. I feel really frustrated that this is how things are. And then I shouldn't feel frustrated. I, and then you just, you should all over yourself. And first off, yep. feelings are meant to be felt. And mm-hmm. we are so good at shoving them away and compartmentalizing them. And okay, I accept it. And then what do I do? Mm-hmm. What do I do with it? It is, don't just keep it inside. Process it in some way. Now that might just be, if it's mild, reflective processing. 
on your own meditation, journaling. That might be talking to a friend. That might be talking to a therapist or a coach or a colleague. And I want to dig into this when it does get internalized and the frustration really builds. Because even so, we, we've identified what's within our sphere of control and gotten empowered and letting go of what we can't control. Clinicians can get into a dark place and become so distressed. We are just the ultimate show no weakness, high achievers, lone wolves. We will just muscle through it. We're just, we are the champions. We're the champions of all. And as a group, we are reluctant to reach out. And I know that you train docs to be sensitive for when one of their partners is in distress. How do you train them to do that? What do you look for? Well, for me, that has looked a lot like disclosing my own pain and suffering. And starting conversations with that. And my story briefly is being the very typical medical student that wanted the A++, the perfectionism, the drive, the hard work, self-sacrifice, brought that all into residency. And residency is impossible to bring that perfectionism to because the learning curve is so steep, the patient complexity, the system complexity, and really worked myself into severe burnout where now I know what I was experiencing is depersonalization where I could not see my patients as people anymore. And for somebody who went into medicine to take care of people, to heal people, that felt terrible. And I deeply internalized that as a personal failing. And once that started happening, the depression followed shortly after. And specifically, suicidal ideation, suicidal plan, ultimately got connected to help. But I share that to say, when I was really suffering with severe burnout, depression, I was performing very well. So I got excellent feedback. I got no, I didn't ever get in trouble. No one ever asked, are you okay? Now, whether other people saw subtle signs, I don't know. But I say that just to say, you might not always know. We're really good at hiding it. And now I am really keyed in, tuned into this and listen to my spidey sense. That's what I call it of just something just doesn't quite seem right. And always asking now, hey, I just noticed something doesn't quite seem right. I care about you. I just want to check it. Sometimes they're like, I just didn't sleep well last night. And that's fine. And a lot of the times there's more there. So we reach out and we can tell that shift after shift, someone is suffering and they're just increasingly negative and punching the tracking board and it's building up. And you say that I'm fine. I'm fine. 
what would you recommend there? First thing I would say is just expressing caring, like genuine caring and curiosity. I have noticed that you just seem a little irritable. I really care about you. I just want you to know that I'm here for you if you need anything. Leave the door open. I think it's important for us not to feel responsible too. Mm. We are the fixers. We are the fixers. Yes. 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 So it's not our job to fix our colleagues that we're worried about, but we can step in and offer an invitation. I know that in your courses, and for those of you who have taken these courses, you are lucky enough to have taken this because this moment is really hard. And I know you role play, you have people role play these moments. Mm-hmm. Where do clinicians, physicians struggle mm-hmm. in this moment? By far, the biggest struggle is not trying to fix it. Uh, we always want to say, oh, this thing's hard. What if you tried this? What have you considered this? And instead of just presence, curiosity, reflective listening, I don't have to fix this. They don't have to fix this. My job is just to be totally with you in this moment. And that is very hard for doctors where we've been trained to fix things. So it requires putting on a different hat, consciously saying, my job right now is just to sit here and support this person. We are so full of advice, which is probably wrong. It's probably bad because it applies just to us or for us to try to put a salve on this situation. And it doesn't take into account this person's upbringing, their current state of mind. and. That fix, while it may seem, yeah, we are being additive here. We are a force multiplier. Really not what they need. You have a friend who had a a, a GBM and he died a couple years ago. And it was, I don't need you to tell me about what cancer is like or how I should feel about cancer. I just want you to hang out and just, and, and I don't actually even want you to ask me if I should go to a movie. I want you to tell me you're on the way to pick me up from a movie, <laughs> pick me up for, to pick me up for a movie and don't take no for it. It's just be yeah. present. And so that I can know that I'm just not alone in this. I think too, the other thing that comes up for me is awareness of our own judgment of mental health, substance use, whatever it is that we actually think it's not okay that they are wherever they are. And when we bring in that energy, people feel that, Mm -hmm. right? And it adds to that, their own narrative. It's not okay that I'm feeling this way versus, yeah, of course, I, I use the words, of course, of course, things have been hard. Of course, it makes sense that your brain is not optimally functioning right now. That's okay. I'm here next to you. We can figure it out the next step together. So presence, curiosity, inquiry, and not fixing. 
because we are not our friend's therapist. We're just here to be a friend, be a colleague. But there is that next step when things are hard and you need help. And mm-hmm. you had talked about feeling suicidal with a plan mm-hmm. and reaching out for help, which I imagine had to be such a hard step. And amongst the community of physicians, clinicians, when that happens, or the idea of doing that insults your self-image, it seems to be socially unacceptable. Uh, They're weak. What's the biggest insult you can get in training? You're weak. What's the greatest compliment? You're strong. And professionally, people think that they will have to put a checkbox of have you sought mental health care in the past five years when you re-credential, when you re-license. Would love to hear you address that that mm-hmm. kind of whole mental gamish of yep. the resistance or the barriers to seeking help. And I will say I never told, I got connected with the facilitator of our resident support group who I did not disclose how serious it was, but he got me connected with a psychiatrist that is what saved my life. But I never told any of my colleagues, supervisors, residency program, never took time off. So I lived through not reaching out in the most minimal way and paying to see a psychiatrist cash. Out of pocket, cash. Out of pocket because I was so fearful of repercussions. So I have been really passionate about changing licensure questions, like the official part of this. And I will say it is rapidly changing. So if anybody doesn't know what the Lorna Breen Foundation is, they are all over this. Over 50% of states have removed all licensing questions about mental health. And the credentialing is shortly following. And I would say what I have learned is it's okay to ask the hard questions. It's okay to say, hey, sometimes when we get depressed, our brains can go scary places. Have you thought about suicide? Do you have a plan? The reality is that by asking them, we are normalizing their experience potentially and giving them an out to ask for help. When you've been there, it's a terrifying place to be. And really isolating. And all the data supports asking the hard question. After you started getting help and sealed therapy so that no so that nobody would know. It was like still, you're still under that veil of shame. Totally. It's so shameful to to get help. Or at least it's not. Then you I don't know if anyone like fully comes out the other side, but now you have awareness and you have tools and it comes down. And you're a chief and you are watching all of the other trainees go through this. It's like in training, we're so heavily rewarded for self-sacrifice and sometimes self-immolation. Yes. What, how did you see things differently after going through this? And then what were your actions? Yeah, my chief year changed my life. And it is because for the first time, I had a different vantage point. 
So what I had lived through during residency was this kind of shameful depression that the narrative that I was broken very much persisted for those years. And when I got to be chief resident and I could see what was happening to the residents differently and that we had a third-year resident quit with six months of residency left. I There was another third-year resident whose wife was emailing me saying, I'm concerned about his safety if he has to do this month in the ICU. Another resident on leave. Like I saw the widespread burnout and depression differently. And it was through that experience that it's like a light switch went off for me. Oh, this isn't a me problem. This is a system problem. Like, what are we doing that our trainees have this degree of burnout and depression just to want to take care of people? And that year, I dedicated so much of my time and energy around, at the time, looking back, what seemed like small things, but were implementing health maintenance half days so people could go to the doctor. It was figuring out primary care offices that were convenient, that would accept residents, that were willing to get them in urgently. It was looking at bigger scheduling issues and where is their opportunity for change. But that light switch has is what has driven me for the last 15 years of organizational change. We have to do this better. We can do this better. And seeing the suffering in our community in a different way. Okay, I don't know if you know this, but tomorrow you're going to be named Surgeon General. And <laughs> you have a... You're not going to put warning labels on cigarette packs. You're going to talk about child safety seats, any of that stuff. <laughs> You're the Surgeon General who is going to be about clinician wellness. Mm-hmm. And you are coming into a system. It's a hard system. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's a hard job. It was a hard job 20 years ago. It's harder now. Yep. You are speaking to a group of people who are not used to feeling this way. They're used to winning a plus plus and this is and so that there you are you've got some kind of mandate here's what i want to do with this system to support this group surgeon general here is your first address to clinician nation (laughs) i know this is coming as a surprise what do you do what is your first initiative to help this community The first thing I would do is actually mandate measurement of well-being and reporting for all organizations. And why I say that is we know that humans being humans, organizations being organizations, they are motivated by what is reportable. If we said well-being of our people is a metric that is tracked, that is reimbursed. Here's a playbook for what we think you need to have in place to address well-being for an organization. 
And here's how we think you might message that. Here's how we think you might develop allies. I can imagine, of course, there's going to be skepticism with good reason amongst our community. And if there is investment and invitation to we want you to be part of a solution to create something different. I know our community ultimately wants that opportunity. We were talking a couple of weeks ago. And I said, hey, if you could mold medicine into what you want it to be, what would you do? And you said, I wish I could burn it to the ground and, re- <laughs> and rebuild it. <laughs> so aside, aside from that, let's start measuring the quality of our job. All right. As we wrap it up, you're speaking to Clinician Nation. Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, maybe that's a might be a better. That's name. a good name. Yeah, better name for this podcast. So, you're speaking to Clinician Nation right now. What is your message for them? One is it's okay to be human. Acknowledging our history of doctors being viewed as superhuman, and just giving ourselves permission to be human. And recognizing that as clinicians, we have power, our voices have power, and we have way more influence than I think we appreciate. And inviting people to bring intentionality to what do you want your relationship with medicine to be? And there is no right answer there. You might decide it's right for me to show up for my shift and take care of the patients that are in front of me to the best of my ability, and I'm going to let the rest go. That's fine. But recognizing there's opportunity to use our influence in a way that feels right for us. And I think about this a lot. If we can't do it, who can? I don't see anybody coming to save us, at least in the short term. And I believe in us. We're amazing. My hope is that we can start to believe in that possibility. Trisha, thank you so much for coming on the show, but even more so what you're doing and what you champion. No, you make a lot of difference in a lot of people's lives. A massive gratitude coming across the airwaves. Thank you. And thank you for what you do. And all the people that you, I mean, you're very much a part of this movement as well. I appreciate that. Yeah. What a lovely place to stop. <laughs> and that is it for today. And you know what? If you love medicine, but you find the job itself leaves a lot to be desired, I work with docs in your shoes who feel the same way and help them extend their careers and have fun doing it. Can you imagine driving to your next shift with a feeling of stoke and excitement? And then when you leave for the day, you think to yourself, hey, that was pretty damn great. We can help get you there. And you can reach out to me at roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.